this is where it gets like, I personally think it gets so juicy because women in particular are so celebrated for like, look how much she can handle. Look how much she can do. Look how much adversity she overcame. And it's like, all of that is really good. And at a certain point, and you don't even notice it's happening, persevering and resilience actually becomes a coping mechanism. And you're no longer able to even invite or see even at an unconscious level, like, or invite in pleasure and joy anymore because you get so used to waiting for the other shoe to drop. This is it, actually. Take a sip and grab a seat, because this is it. I have a lot of friends on the internet. Okay, that sounds weird, I guess, but is it? I mean, maybe. 10 or 15 years ago, it may have been odd, but things have changed, especially in the last years of this pandemic. Looking for human connection in all sorts of places is kind of the norm now. I'm not sure how I found Lise, or maybe she found me. I do know that a bunch of badass women who I admire were all following her when I landed on her page, and that was enough reason for me to get in line. Lise is an author, a speaker, a podcast host, a single mama, and a conscious relationship coach. We chat about loss, being alone, human connection, and finding light in dark places. She gave me so much in the time we talked. Confirmation, truth, enlightenment, looking in different directions. I had so many ahas, and I totally get that. And those are basically my favorite kind of chats. You'll hear a squeaky noise from time to time and one rogue bark from Lisa's dog, and honestly, it just made me feel all the more close to her. I hope you enjoy our conversation. This is Lise Wilcox, actually. Okay, hello. I'm so happy to be talking to you. Likewise. Feels like a long time coming. It does, doesn't it? Friends from the internet, it's my favorite. (laughs) So I love to start by asking my guests to share a childhood story. Um, mostly because I think it sets the stage, I think, for who a person truly is. I don't know if that's true, but can you tell me a story about growing up that stands out maybe as a bit of a marker for who you are today? This is so funny, and I have no idea how it would relate or even identify as a marker, but the first story that comes to mind when you ask that question is flashing back to when I was probably four or five, Um, It was just my dad and me and they were really happy years. Like when it was just my dad and me, really, really happy years of my childhood. And I remember he took me to Disney and when we got to Florida, he rented like a T-bird, like he rented like a red (laughs) Thunderbird, which is really funny because my dad's kind of a straight edged guy. And I have a distinctive memory of him buying Sunny D Twinkies and me asking, can I ride in the trunk? And him (laughs) saying, yes. (laughs) So like, it's one of my favorite childhood memories. I have no idea how that happened. I have no idea. He's a physician. I have no idea why he gave consent to do that, man. It's such a happy memory. And as I'm like self-analyzing, I think it speaks to how much safety and trust I had in my father. Like the man could do no wrong. If he said it was safe to eat junk food and roll around in a trunk. Okay. But in Florida, let's do it. (laughs) That is amazing. Was he working out some kind of his own? I mean, I wonder what his purpose for his side of it was, you know, to rent the car, to eat the junk food, to do all of that. Like I, I would love to know his side of it. Yeah. I wonder, cause it, those are the really playful years and that we don't have to go into it, but like those years ended 
pretty abruptly, <clears throat> but it's like those years, it was just so playful and fun and adventurous and really lovely. That's oh, so beautiful. Oh my god. Thanks goodness. for taking me down my own walk memory lane. <laughs> it's my favorite thing to do with people. So I'm glad when it happens. <laughs> oh, what a great idea. Oh man, I, I have to actually be more playful in my life. I think, especially as a parent, that's probably mm-hmm. a whole other conversation, but certainly I can find myself or listen to myself sometimes. Don't you hear yourself sometimes? Mm-hmm. And you're thinking, oh my goodness, where did that person, not that I was the most playful. I don't know if I would do something like what your dad did, but (laughs) you know, there was a playful side to me at some point. And I try to find that balance. I definitely was accused uh, of not being playful when my marriage was ending. Um, And how do you find that again? And maybe it's as simple as that. Maybe it's as simple as go and do the thing, rent the car, eat the junk food. It doesn't have to be a trip to Disney, but maybe it's on a smaller scale, do you, how do you find fun? Are you playful as a parent? I am. And I think it's because, um, well, there are several reasons, but I am very playful as a parent. And although I am definitely the leader of our family, it also, I have three little girls and it also sometimes feels like there are just four little girls (laughs) and trust me, like there are still great boundaries and all, all that really good stuff. Again, it's not a democracy. Like I'm definitely the leader. There's a lot of mutual respect, et cetera, et cetera. And still like we have so much fun and I'm not talking trips to Disney. I'm talking about just like, we laugh, like we laugh so much. It's so playful. There's so much joy. Of course there are disagreements. Of course there are days, usually moments, but sometimes days that don't feel like that, but there is so much play present here. And from my own experience, like I wasn't taught that it's just what I, what feels really good for me. And even in my own um, business and my own coaching practice, then, you know, one of the suggestions or questions is usually like, what actually brings you joy? Like what makes you feel good? So many grown women can't answer that because they've been buried in their own perfection or overachievement or whatever else it is. They have to tap back into a childhood memory and be like, so what did bring you joy? And when you can flash back to, well, When I was nine, I felt a lot of joy being at camp, walking the trails, just kind of like hanging out. Then the idea is that you recreate that experience and watch as it transports you back to that moment. And it immediately brings joy and play back into your life. Oh my goodness. That almost makes me cry a little bit (laughs) because as soon as you were saying that you asked women that I knew that you were going to tell me that it was hard for people to come up with an answer because I'm sitting here thinking, what brings me joy? Isn't that so sad that we have to, not that we have to dig back. I think that's beautiful, but just that we don't have an answer right away. Well, and so many people get, this is where it gets like, I, I personally think it gets so juicy because women in particular are so celebrated for like, look how much she can handle. Look how much she can do. Look how much adversity she overcame. And it's like, all of that is really good. And at a certain point, and you don't even notice it's happening, persevering and resilience actually becomes a coping mechanism and you're no longer able to even invite or see even at an unconscious level like or invite in pleasure and joy anymore because you get so used to waiting for the other shoe to drop oh my goodness I told a story I think I don't know if I told on the podcast or I was just telling a friend they get intertwined sometimes but um, for the long time after my marriage ended I obviously was you know I was unhappy it was hard it was tough work I was doing it all by myself and I lived in that story for so long and I remember 
when it started to lighten and when it started to feel like I had a handle on things and yes. whether I was going back to work or what have you dating someone, I don't even remember the actual situation, but mm-hmm. somebody asked me one day how I was. And my, my first answer was I was great, but I didn't answer that way because I thought by saying I was good and great that I would be judged for not working hard enough or isn't that so crazy I wanted people to know that I was like working my butt off over here and if I said that I was good then that meant things were easy isn't that fascinating when my parents died I definitely remember being very cautious about telling people I was having a good day or that I was okay there were a few reasons for that one I didn't want to be okay Because if I was okay, maybe that meant that I was moving on and also that I was letting them go. Two, we've all seen judgment on social from people who blast someone for posting a pic of themselves smiling after a heartache or a tragedy, as if they're not allowed to have a happy moment ever again. But mostly, I wasn't sure I wanted to be okay, if that makes sense. I was worried about what other people would think, but I was also very worried about what I thought too. I think we're conditioned to be a certain way, and what's so confusing about that is there's a million different ways that people want us to be. Wouldn't it just be easier to be ourselves and let the people that dig on that real version of us find us? Uh, Yeah, it would. It seems silly to fight the thing that's most naturally true. So the one thing that I find about you and and following you and and being on your website and and researching you uh, and just feeling like I know you is that you're very clear on who you are. It's so beautiful. It's such a beautiful trait. Did that come from life experience or is it in part of your training or something specific or were you just born that way? Tens of thousands of dollars and hours <laughs> in therapy and coaching okay, is, the, is the, um, the short answer to that. I think we ultimately always know who we are and we are taught very often from a very young age to be not that. And that was my own personal experience that every time I was myself, I was dramatically punished. And every time I was somebody else, not celebrated, but like allowed to stay. And so like when you are constantly rejected for being who you are, trust me, you develop a very thick skin for not being who you are and you do whatever it takes to fit in wherever you go and just please and please and please and please and develop codependency patterns over and over and over again. So walking myself back home to myself has been that process of being like, wow, I was everything to everyone for probably 35 years, maybe a little bit less. And at a certain point, I couldn't, like I was, I thought I was going to die. Like I couldn't do that anymore. And I consciously chose to do all kinds of unconscious work that would allow me to feel safe enough to be who I am. That's amazing. So many people don't, can't recognize it, I guess, probably number one, and don't know how to take the steps to get out of that situation or into a different situation. So how Mm -hmm. did you, how did you first, like, what was the very first step? Do you know? Uh, It started with divorce for sure. And that was like the radical reset button. I shouldn't even call it a reset button, but it felt like a reset button. And it was like a major change needs to happen here. For some people, it's often not a major change. It's not like we talk about the leap and like, oh, just leap and the net will appear. Usually the leap is not actually taking a big flying leap. It's making one subtle shift in your life that has massive implications. But for me, it was a, it was a huge departure. I didn't like the way I felt. And I think that having that real, honest, painful 
conversation with myself of like, I don't like who I am. And I don't think this is even me. So, uh oh, <laughs> what does that mean? And who I am? Who am I? So, I feel like divorce was the catalyst to really figuring out who is this person. And then from there, it takes so many twists and turns, but it culminates in me learning who that person is and turning it into a business. Well, congratulations <laughs> on that. <laughs> Not every person can do that. So that's amazing. <laughs> I don't know how we found each other. I mean, obviously it was on Instagram and I don't know if it was through somebody, but it's so beautiful when, you know, you find someone on social and everything aligns. And I know that one thing we have in common is that we're both obsessed with human connection. Yes. And, you know, you believe that the foundation of every relationship starts with the relationship we have with ourselves, as you just said, and loving ourselves. Yes. Why is this hard for us to learn? And why are we not taught this? You know, my girls are coming home and they're struggling with math or whatever it is. And I was like, why are we not teaching people just about basic human connection and those kinds of life skills? If you zoom out a little, we were raised by kids who were raised by parents who grew up in the war mm-hmm. and their parents grew up in a war too. And so like, that's, that's not that far removed from our experience. Like worldwide war is a stone's throw away from our own history. Mm-hmm. Even during the pandemic, I, I know across the board, this is not, this is like a sweeping generalization has not been this way for so many people. And for so many other people, the pandemic has largely been an existential crisis. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's more to that story, but I'm going to gloss over it. But yes, of course, I'm aware of that. Right. In world wars, there was no real room for existential crises. It was a matter of survival, 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 resources, resources, resources. So I think there hasn't really been room for people to culminate or to even ruminate on like the human condition, the human experience. Philosophers did that when they were like eating grapes in Greece, like they had, <laughs> did that, they did that self-reflection. But I think on mass, there hasn't been a lot of time generationally to really hone in on this and work it into like the bureaucracy of the education system. Most of us have been raised by generations of people who didn't know how to do this and who didn't have the skill set to do it because they couldn't. And so it's like, I kind of feel like our generation is turning that around a little bit. Sometimes I think people argue that it, we might be tilting the scales a little too far in the opposite <laughs> direction. Yes. Uh-huh. But nonetheless, what we're, what we're doing is opening up conversations, not only on mental health, but on emotional health and have the significance that, and the weight that emotional health carries in our day-to-day lives and relationships. I wasn't raised in a household where we talked about our feelings or made big declarations of love. It wasn't unloving or anything like that. It's just how it got passed down, I think. My mom and her siblings came to Canada after the war, and her parents were quiet, hardworking Dutch people who just wanted to subtly slip in and give their kids a decent life. My Oma and Opa were kind and sweet, but there were rules and there were ways to behave, and actually, to my mom's credit, Our house was a lot more loving and free than the one she was raised in. So I think slowly, as new families emerge, those shackles get loosened a little bit. I knew I was loved, but I wasn't told that very often, so I was determined to say it a lot in my house. When my dad got mad, he would literally stop talking to us for three days. We'd tiptoe around and wait for him to snap out of it. And although I have some of his hot-headedness, I vowed to never make my kids suffer in my silence. 
We're emotional beings, and what a funny thing it is to think that we shouldn't be talking about all of that, or there was a time when we just didn't. And listen, old habits die hard because I still shove certain things down and don't always want to look pain or big emotion directly in the eye, but I am getting better, and I suppose that's always the hope in anything, isn't it? There's so much going on, especially right now, you know, I've, like I mentioned, I've got a tween and a teen. So there's all the changes, right? And, and even for myself, I'm, I'm coming in on menopause here. So we're all, there's all these things that are happening to us emotionally that we can't really understand. And we don't know how to understand as it being part of our life. And, and you're right. People are sharing more, which is so wonderful. Someone said to me, or I read somewhere, you know, I couldn't, Oh, it was you. Maybe it was you. I couldn't just find somebody on the street to talk about my divorce with, you know, I can do that on the internet, which is so wonderful. Maybe there is too much sharing in some, in some aspects. I don't know, (laughs) (laughs) but I have definitely found it's been helpful. And even from the podcast, I've had people write me and say, thank you for talking about this particular thing, because I didn't know I was, you know, someone else was going through this. So the conversation, it's so important for all the people, but in my particular house, because we're on these different ends of the spectrum, we, we need that. We need to understand our emotions. Well, that's what I find so fascinating is that in studying emotional health and wellness, we are really studying the the human condition. Like if you really break it down and distill it, we're studying the human condition. Like think about what that that what it means to be a human. And so many of our feelings, you know, we want to judge or shame or repress. And it's like, hang on, you can't judge shame or repress loneliness. Loneliness is a part of the package deal you sign up for when you become a human. Mm -hmm. You can't repress anger. It's a part of your own human experience. And it's like, when you start to blow the lid off of that and normalize this very human experience, you're allowing people to bear witness. Oh, you're allowing people to bear witness to your experience. And there's literally nothing more powerful than having somebody bear witness to your experience. Cause it is what allows you to feel even more deeply human and to know that you are known. That's really hard to accept. Sometimes I have definitely been in my life in many occasions, trying to sort of gloss over the upset, gloss over the anger, the hurt, yes. you know, I have um, one voicemail on my phone from my mom. It was my birthday before she died. She died a couple of weeks after my birthday. We didn't think she was going to die. So, and I still have it. I've saved it in like six different places, but I will only listen to it once a year. And someone asked me, why do you only listen to it once a year? Because I don't know if I can put myself in that place, you know, because I know what's going to happen when I hear a voice. And by the way, sometimes it's joy, pure joy. It feels very familiar. She's right there. And sometimes it makes my heart ache in a way that I cannot handle in that moment. So I will avoid it. But then when I play it, I'm always kind of content and happy that I did. So I think facing it straight on sometimes is, is so important, but it is very hard to do. It is. And then, and when you get into that space of almost fearing your emotions or feeling the effect your emotions will have on you, then we really go into isolation mode, right? Because then the feeling is I must be the only person who has ever or could ever feel this way. Right. So we have more shame, we add more isolation and part of this bearing witness and in a healthy, positive, and I would argue boundaried way is that you get this very stark, but comforting realization. Like everybody feels this way. Like we are having such a similar emotional experience. It manifests totally differently in our own physical experiences, but emotionally our experience 
is so similar because there are natural milestones and markers across all of human development. So not just in child development, but like all the way through to adulthood, like they each go hand in hand with this almost predictable emotional experience. And when you all of a sudden bring that to the table by being able to share comfortably and by receiving help that is available, for example, you start to get a sense of like, oh my God, there's that, there's nothing fucking wrong with me. I'm just a human having a human experience. Right. We could take, let ourselves off the hook a little bit. Yeah. Was there a defining moment in your life, or maybe there was more than one, where you just knew things had to be different or you would not, and maybe it's the divorce, but mm-hmm. you knew you wouldn't have the life that you wanted or deserved? Like, was, was there a moment? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there have been a couple moments. Yeah. But, um, yeah, the biggest one was this stark realization. I, I wrote about this story in great detail in my first book, but there was this defining moment of lying on the floor in my perfect house, in my perfect brand new renovated kitchen with my three incredible children beside me, like looking at this dream life I'd created and being like, Oh shit. Like if this isn't enough for me, what the fuck is wrong with me? And I got this stark, stark realization that like, it wasn't the stuff that was going to bring me joy. It's like I had to become enough for me first. And until I was enough for me, nothing was going to feel right. And thus began this like long and winding um, passage of, of really getting to know what that looks like and feels like in a different way. Right. I did a whole episode on defining moments and I could probably do a bunch more. I always tend to pick the big obvious things as the life changers because, well, obviously, but there have been some sneaky little moments that have also been huge and maybe even bigger than the big ones, but I didn't really notice them until I was looking back at them. Probably, if I really sat with all of it, I'd see that they're all connected, which is a little freaky, actually, because we're talking very different circumstances set years apart from each other, and it seems like they have nothing to do with one another. I was recently talking to my friend about the dentist. I have a confession. I'm a terrible dentist-goer. I have so much shame around it, like I hate the dentist. And I try really hard not to pass that fear and anxiety onto my kids. The dentist is great. They get such a bad rep. They make our teeth so clean. You know, fake it till you make it. But as I was chatting with my friend, who also isn't a big dentist fan, it occurred to me that it's actual childhood trauma. Like, I just realized that. My dentist as a kid was a sweet and lovely man. I thought he was ancient, but he was probably only like 40 or something. Back then, they didn't wear gloves. Oh my God, can you even imagine this? And by the way, I'm thinking of Dr. McGee, not me. And I had a lot of teeth issues. They were really crooked. I was prone to cavities. I had a super small palate and jaw, like seriously, the works. So my memories of the dentist include his giant fingers rifling around in my tiny mouth, having a bucket load of teeth pulled, train tracks with the little elastics, giant needles being shoved into my cheeks and gums, and two rounds of braces. So yeah, it's kind of all connected. Lise is a conscious relationship coach, and that's her whole deal. Digging into relationships, like all the relationships, and figuring out where they connect and how we consciously or unconsciously handle them. Buckle up, you're about to get a little therapy. What are some of the things that you dig into as a transformational mindset and success coach? Can you sort of explain what you do? 
I always have a really hard time putting a label on what I do, but what I currently market myself is as a, a conscious relationship coach. Mm. Everything in our life is relational. And, you know, we have a relationship to our work. We have a relationship to our money, to our friends, to our family, to our past, to intimacy for sure. Yeah. So I work with people for six months at a time. We start with a one day intensive breakthrough day experience. And it's honestly like an eight hour zoom call that feels like years of therapy just on its own. And then we have a monthly two hour call for six months. And I only work with people for six months specifically because I like, we need time, any kind of therapeutic coaching, any kind of healing modality requires trust and intimacy. And so that length of a container is such a gift to offer to people. Mm -hmm. What is so interesting is that I don't really advertise. I don't really market like I'm on Instagram, but that's kind of it. And almost a hundred times out of a hundred people come to me and they say, I don't know why I need to work with you, but I know that I need to work with you specifically. So we'll usually take that breakthrough day experience with one, one relationship focus. So I just did one last week on, on somebody's relationship to money. I've done it on intimate relationships or their own, their relationship to their own spirituality, whatever it is. And it gives us unbelievable clarity and context as to where somebody's coming from, where they are currently, and ultimately where they want to be. And you can swap out that language to be how they felt, how they feel, how they want to feel. And we take all the information that we gathered in that day. There's a lot of unconscious clearing work that we do. There's a lot of what feels like um, cognitive behavioral therapy, talk therapy, like it, it's just very holistic in nature. And we use it as a scaffolding to map out what patterns need to be broken that used to protect you at an emotional or neurological level that don't keep you safe anymore. What kinds of toxic or limiting beliefs have been present as part of your own narrative and storyline that used to work that don't work anymore. And then we, we, we break those in a way that actually creates neurological and emotional safety at the unconscious level. And I help people practice those new skills of building a new pattern or a new way of being and feeling over and over and over again. So somebody might come to me for like work on their intimate relationship. And we end up talking about their relationship to work because they are so highly interrelated. Anytime somebody comes to me to do a money breakthrough day, it always becomes a relationship talk, like intimate relationship. So it's like they come to me for one thing, but what we really do is it's like a gateway to get access into all their relational lives by addressing the relationship at the core, which is the relationship they have to themselves. That is unbelievable. But, and you must see light bulbs going off all the time. Like, do you ever feel like, oh, you must feel wonderful all the time when you're helping people, um, even hearing that money relationship to, you know, yourself and work and intimate relationship, all of those things being connected. So many people, including myself, don't really, we can't see that. We don't know how the Mm -hmm. one thing is affecting another. And that's why like, I wish I don't have an elevator pitch and it, it goes against every rule of business, but it's, I don't know how you condense that because it's like, it's so intricate and it's so interrelated. Right. And I was talking with a client this morning who was like, um, she was like, I get so frustrated because I see all the time, like memes on Instagram, whatever, being like, just ask for help. She's like, when you are a perfectionist, when you're an overachiever, you don't even know that you need help. And then I would argue if you don't even know that you need help, 
you had better be damn sure it will not feel safe or comfortable for you to ask for help. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like the idea of asking for help triggers the same physiological response as seeing a raccoon at your back door at night, right? Like you, you have the same fear response. It's very difficult to market that of like, Hey, this problem that you don't even know you might have, let's like heal that together. So there's so much intuition for people involved in, in, I think the connection of like, I don't know what's like, I can't put my finger on what I'm feeling right now, but I know it's not working. And I don't want to feel like that anymore. Such a brave first step for someone to be able to be able to say that, because that certainly is so hard, especially if, like you say, they don't totally no, or it goes yes. against everything that they've thought about themselves for their whole yes. lives. <laughs> and, and almost all of us have a fear of rejection, whether we're aware of it or not, because we're social animals. The idea of rejection is basically like if we're rejected from our social group, it used to mean that we were cast aside and we would die. Right. Yeah. And again, like it's not that long ago. So that, that was true for our species. So we each carry this like embedded biological fear of rejection. So if you fear rejection and your entire identity is built around being the overachiever, the one everybody else relies on, the one who can carry anything, who can overcome any adversity and any obstacle. Now, on top of that fear of rejection, we're also having an identity crisis because, oh my God, if I need help, I must be a fraud for having helped so many people that come before me. So like a lot of the people that come to work with me are pretty high achieving And they're the ones that everybody else is leaning on. They're in positions of leadership and authority who like have their shit together and they still need a safe and supportive sacred space because spoiler alert, they too are human and they too need to be resourced, you know? Many times in my life, I've said that I want to come back as a person who cares less. (laughs) Let me explain. As someone who's pretty type A, I like to call myself mid-maintenance, it's a horrifying prospect to think I could just let things be. I could pay less attention. I could show up late. I could not adhere to a schedule or a daily to-do list or allow myself to just fall apart for a second. Horrifying. I'm going to take a wild guess here and say that's probably not super healthy. (laughs) So the idea of being someone who doesn't worry so much about that stuff, even just a little bit less, well, it's pretty enticing. I had a bit of a blow up recently because I looked around and everyone in my house was asking for stuff. Sitting back all comfy in big chairs, scrolling through TikTok while calling out for rides and food and money and can I do this and will you do that? Dirty dishes sat beside the sink, the cat needed to be fed, the dog needed to be walked. I had a three-day-old pile of laundry in the dryer that needed folding, and someone had the nerve to be asking me for McDonald's. But then I realized I'd been doing it all this whole time. Making up for the absence of a second parent in the house, I never wanted them to feel lack. I've cried behind closed doors, I've excused myself and sunk down the side of a wall and felt like I would never get back up. I've cleaned up, I've moved mountains to make sure that everyone feels normal and protected, which is hilarious because my blow up was coming from a place of feeling exactly the opposite of that. Since I've been divorced, which is a while now, I've only really had sort of one serious relationship, someone that got introduced to my kids. um, Mm. And it was in the last couple of years and we're not together anymore, but he's a wonderful human. And it was a really 
great sort of first experience in terms of like allowing somebody into our sacred space of the three of us. Um, But we were on, I don't even know what date it was. It was not super early, but it wasn't also, we weren't really comfortable either yet. And we've gone downtown to have dinner and my girls are being taken care of and there was a problem out in the house and it looked like I was probably going to have to come back home, which is, you know, that's pretty standard. (laughs) And we hadn't even, I think we'd ordered one drink and the disappointment I felt of course, but then also wanting to get home to them. So I was concerned. I had so many emotions and he said to me very plainly and, you know, casually, you can ask for help. And I burst into tears just down on queen street, just burst right into tears Um, because I don't even know how to process that now, actually, but it came from fear and, you know, him seeing something in me that I certainly wasn't allowing myself to see. I certainly didn't think I could ask for help. And yeah, it was riddled with emotion and just that one simple question. That's a really beautiful story. And I think Testament to what that relationship was mm-hmm. even for that, that season of your life. Right. You're right. Yep. A hundred percent for sure. I talk uh, to people a lot about like feeling like they don't have the luxury of falling apart. And if you, again, if you're somebody who's overcome a lot of shit in the past, you get used to overcoming, you get used to that being your story and you get used to waiting for the other shoe to drop or like something else bad to happen so that you can overcome it. And often those are the people who like their friends will be like, I don't know how you do it. Like, I just don't know how you balance it all. Like, wow, you're so strong. You're so, you're just so strong. I couldn't be that strong. And you're like, strong isn't really a choice. Mm-hmm. Like the, uh, the other option here is falling apart. And if I did have a luxury of falling apart, I fucking would. However, <laughs> if I fall apart, I don't know that I'll have the strength or resources to put myself back together again. And that becomes excellent feedback of just how much help you could be receiving from somebody else who can help take some of the weight off of your emotional plate. Right. Right. Wow. Yeah. You just described me to a T (laughs) and falling apart also has a domino effect because there's other people. (laughs) You said that your cancer experience was riddled with miracles. I love that line. Obviously you're here. So that is one beautiful miracle. (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean? What do you mean when you say that? So when you asked me a few minutes ago about like other defining moments where I knew something had to change, cancer was another big one, Mm -hmm. really, really big one, because I was 36 and had a breast cancer diagnosis, single self-employed mother of three, like, no, (laughs) I'm sorry, but no, that's nope, nope, don't, I can't handle that. And it was emotional and intense to say the least. And I was really angry. The one thing cancer, like I think all cancer has in common is that it's just so front end loaded with a myriad of appointments and tests while they get you figured out, like what is going on here? Like, how bad is it? How good is it? Like, where are we at? So you're just, you're like a human pin cushion for weeks or months or, or more. And I came home from one of those appointments and I was just lying on my floor in a moment of like rock bottom. And I was screaming, like not cute screaming, like primal rage screaming at what I would call God. Some people say the universe, whatever it is to you. I was fucking mad. And I was like, how the fuck am I supposed to do this? And I heard this quiet little whisper. You're going to make this beautiful. And I was like, excuse me. And I heard it again. And it was like, oh, you're going to make this beautiful. 
it was like a lightning bolt of clarity hit me. And I remember sitting up and being like, holy shit, like, I don't know how to have cancer, but I know how to make things beautiful. And when I shifted into fucking forget about cancer, like, I don't know how to have cancer, but I know how to trust people. I know how to make things beautiful. So I'm going to trust the people I'm being cared for by, and I'm going to make the entire experience beautiful. My focal point became not overcoming cancer. My focal point became, how do I make this hospital experience beautiful? What do I need to do? And so that included so many things of like, I don't know, even like all the papers that I had to carry, I put them in a beautiful folder. My really intense, terrifying, like overwhelming named medications for chemo. My girls chose this like rose gold um, toiletry bag. So like the bag was beautiful. Instead of looking at their names, like the, the scary medical names, we made a chart that <laughs> like, and the girls put stickers on the lids and then match them up with a chart. So I'd be like, okay, so before chemo, I need to pop two unicorns and a shooting star <laughs> and then I'll be good to go. And if nausea sets in after chemo, I just need a couple of these floating hearts. Like I'm good to go. And it like, it demedicalized it and literally, like, I can't, I can't, this is not hyperbole, literally every step along the way, all I focused on was making it a really beautiful thing or experience. And when I shifted into that state, the miracles that followed were insane. I hate needles. Somehow they changed the rules of the entire system so that I wouldn't have to give myself needles. They would actually send a home care nurse for four months to do it for me. I didn't have any health insurance. I'm self-employed, like, and very recently self-employed, like I wasn't prepared for that. And so like somehow somebody pulled a loophole to treat me like a senior citizen so that I didn't have to pay for any meds. I wrote my first book during chemo. And so I, the nurses knew that about me. And so they saved the best chair, like where I felt really safe and secure, but it also had the best light. So I would go for chemo treatments and they had this, um, I forget what it's called, but like kind of like a, like a window decoration looks like kind of like a prism. So all I did was shoot rainbows over my entire oh my <laughs> I was like, what's happening? And it was just like everything that could have gone well did like we got best case scenarios. My doctors were insanely handsome and really fine. So like, but I'd be going into surgery, I'd go laughing even into laughing gas. Cause they were just cracking me up. It was so when I say it was riddled with miracles, I really mean it. It was like every opportunity for a miracle that could be came. And it was really, really special. What a perfect example of taking something, turning it, and then it having a completely different outcome than it could have. Yes. I call it emotional alchemy. So it's like a mindset often gets like really misinterpreted. Mm. That like all you have to do is think about something and you get it. Like that's so not true with the skill set that I have and knowing what I know, I was able to make it safe for me to do all that stuff. And anytime it didn't feel safe emotionally or neurologically, I had the tools to kind of clear that so that I could actually change my unconscious view and lens on the world so that I would be more and more open to even seeing that as an option and then receiving it. Wow. That is, that's incredible. Isn't that just so amazing? What a way to enter into something. I look back and think it would have been so cool to have the fortitude and the enlightenment to make beautiful things out of shitty situations. Imagine if I'd been able to peacefully and graciously walk through my divorce. If every time I missed a bill payment or I struggled to make ends meet, I could see the beauty in it. Okay, maybe that's a stretch, but also maybe it's not. Whenever I've been grateful for a thing happening, it pretty much always serves me better. Whenever I've been scared of something, it's always a huge blessing on the other side. 
What's that saying? The good stuff is just on the other side of fear or something like that. Even asking people to be on this podcast, it's super hard for me. I mean, it's definitely gotten easier, but it makes me nervous and I'm not even ever upset if I hear a no. I'm totally fine with it. But the funniest part is pretty much everyone says yes. And when they do, there is so much goodness on the other side of that fear. The voice notes and the stories make this podcast, in my opinion. So why would I let fear limit me? We're funny creatures, us humans. Seems to me that life is a never-ending expedition of figuring one's shit out. I started out pretty fearless. I think about some of the things that I did in my 20s. I mean, it's not like I was the biggest risk taker in the world, but you know, <laughs> I look back and go, oh my God, I did that, or I'm still here. It's kind of amazing in, in some aspects. Now that I'm older and I have children, I think parenting okay. brings a little bit of fear and I'm getting older and they're getting older. I'm trying so hard to, you know, find a little bit more of that fearlessness, like bring that back into my life while also, you know, being comfortable. Are you scared of anything? And and how do you sort of get past that or push past that? I'm scared of a lot of things. Okay. <laughs> I, I think that, you know, the blessing and the curse of wisdom is that you get a little peek behind the curtain, right? And when you peek behind the curtain, it's a bell you can't unring. Like you can't unsee what you saw. Right that's a gift. Like, oh my God, it's, it's such a gift. And it allows us to kind of take the shortcut from meeting somebody and be like, oh, I have done this before. I can see all your red flags in like neon flashing lights. I don't even need to go further. This is over, right? Like that's wisdom at its finest. The curse of wisdom is that it annihilates this worldview. We tend to have that things are black and white. As I say, like the curse of wisdom is that you appreciate fucking nothing is black or white. It's all shades of gray. Mm -hmm. And in that, that gray scale spectrum, it's, it becomes, I think sometimes tougher to navigate because you become so much more even statistically aware, like those things that people don't get divorced and then get breast cancer at 36. You're like, Oh, they do. And that person was me, right. right? You become so much more aware of how possible things are for worse and for better that I think it naturally opens up more fear. And when we're really conscious and self-aware, we can teach ourselves to weather those storms. Cause we, what, how was it? Emerson? I think it was Al Emerson who said like, he could sum up everything he knows about life in three words. It goes on. Right. You become so adept at being like, this is a challenge. I will move through it. This will hurt for a while. I will navigate it. And I think that, you know, some of my fears are alive and well. And I also know that fears are great insight and feedback as to what still needs to be healed. So you start doing this dance in a much more fluid way of like, there's a fear. What is it telling me? What do I need to do? Or what do I not need to do? How do I hold space for that feeling? What do I need to learn through this experience as I like, become embodied aware that you only ever have control over how you respond and react to something. Yes. And we talk about fear a lot in this house because of the space and time that they're in right now of being a teen and a tween and how people react to each other and how other kids react. And, you know, you can't do anything about what's happening in anyone else's house and you can only deal with your own shit. But I talk a lot about the way people behave coming from a place of hurt or fear and trying to understand that, you know, that's, that's a difficult thing to try to explain because I'm still trying to figure it out myself, but you're right. The way that we behave and we act a lot of time comes from that. Yeah. Well, and especially during pandemic times too, right? Because 
it illuminates. And no matter what your experience has been in the pandemic, it illuminates people's deeply held and largely unconscious fears. It just brings them to the surface onto this invisible sign. It's like, we're walking around with an invisible sign. It's like, Oh, hello. My name is Lisa. And my greatest fear is (laughs) that's pretty powerful because everybody's (laughs) walking around two years later, like a little more on edge than they ever have before. Right. And that, that does something to a culture and a climate. When I was going to tell my mom that my husband and I were separating, I was so scared because I mean, I knew she would be disappointed, but I think more than that, I thought that she would be scared at the thought of me raising the girls by myself. Like, I think that, you know, you always worry about your kids, of course. So her fear would have been more about how was I going to handle that in Bridget Jones, there's that great scene where she's at the end of the table and they're all paired up and they're asking her if she's dating anybody. And I've definitely been in that situation before. And I think people are comfortable when people are in relationships and they're paired up. Why did you write this book? So it had to be written. (laughs) (laughs) It's called Alone, the Truth and Beauty of Belonging. And, you know, going back to that invisible sign around my neck, my greatest fear for sure is never meeting my person. It's a huge fear. And after I wrote the first book, which is really like, it's, it's called to call myself beloved, a story of hope, healing and coming home. It effectively is like a 386 page self-love manifesto. It breaks down the fucking memes and people are like, just love yourself. Just love yourself. No, it actually teaches you how to love yourself. And the second book was more born out of like, okay, cool. I love myself and I'm still single. So like what the actual fuck? <laughs> And I did this exploration of like, but I actually kind of like being single and I really enjoy my solitude. So what the hell are these feelings of loneliness and fear here to teach me about? And the spoiler of the book is that the truth and beauty of it is that when you belong to yourself, you're never really alone and cultivating what it means to have those feelings of loneliness, how to understand that primal desire to be partnered because that is a part of our biology you know, like the worst part of, I'm going to just say it, like the worst part of feminism is like trying to teach people that you can do it all by yourself and that you don't need a man. It's like, no, but you're allowed to have a partner. If you want to have a partner, you're allowed to have one. And that doesn't make you less strong or less independent or, you know, weaker or, or anything. It, it's really normal and natural to, to desire partnership. And so it kind of does a deep dive into that and what, what loneliness feels like in a partnership, which is really painful. What does it feel like to be alone in entrepreneurship and in parenting, in your friend circles and peer groups? And so it was a book that like, I almost don't remember writing it because it kind of just fell out. I don't know. I think it's a really good tool and resource for anyone. I will say in the book, it's a love letter to anyone and everyone who's ever felt the slow burning sting of being alone and wondered what the hell to do about it. Oh yeah. Okay. Yep. I need both of them Check it out. <laughs> on my nightstand immediately. Stat. <laughs> I think you'll really like it. I think I will too. So I will definitely let's put that on my own Christmas <laughs> list. <laughs> what is your best story about human connection? Oof. That's a great question. I don't even know how to answer it because my whole life was basically built around human connection. I'm trying to find one that really stands out. That's good though. If that's, yeah, that's a nice answer. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't have like a good anecdote for it, but um, I I just really feel like 
we are wired for connection and any resistance you feel to that is very valuable insight is what still needs to be healed. What kind of boundaries maybe need to loosen up a little bit, or maybe even be tightened up a little bit, having a deep longing or desire for that kind of connection, especially at an intimate level makes you human and normal. It doesn't make you weaker than or less than. Thank you. <laughs> this is like a full therapy session, by the way. So wow, it was really, really nice to talk to you. I really appreciate all of your insights and your stories. And I think what you're giving to the world and to people is so valuable. And what a gift that all the things that you've been given, you know, to end up in this situation, to be able to help other people in this way. And just in this last hour, you've given me so much. So I really appreciate wow. it. Thank you so much. I'm so happy we had the chance to actually connect. And next time it'll be tea uh, in person. Definitely. (laughs) Okay. I'll talk to you soon. You bet. This is a tip, actually. I mean, somebody told me years ago, you alone are enough. And it made me angry. Like it made me angry to hear those words. And I think that's really valuable information because now, like I understand what that means. Another passage I absolutely love is from Rumi that what you seek is seeking you. And that always brings so much comfort of like what you want, you want for a reason, right? And it's, it's okay to follow that. One that's really top of mind right now is my own, but shift patience into presence and allow it to be what it is. Thank you to Lise for her time, her wisdom, her kindness, and her free coaching session. I hope you felt part of our conversation and connected to it. You can find her at Lise Wilcox on Instagram. Lise has two books, To Call Myself Beloved and Alone, The Truth and Beauty of Belonging, books you definitely should read. You can find them where books are bought and also on her website, which has a lot of other nuggets of wisdom and beauty. It's LiseWilcox.com. I'm at This Is It Actually on Instagram and at Jenny Besworth on Twitter. Okay, have a beautiful day. Now go say something nice to someone. This is it, actually. Take a sip and grab a seat. Cause this is it.